going to love this. Just love it. You will. I promise. Really, you will. Place I would rather be right here on KPFK Pacifica Radio 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org and on the Stitcher app and on the TuneIn app. And on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn, and on Netroots Radio, and on Liberal Justice Radio, you can run, but you can't hide. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Uh, we got a, an exclusive here for you today. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. But, uh, Desi, uh, have, they, have they ended Obamacare yet? Has that that has not ended yet? All right. Let me know if the president signs a bill to repeal his own signature achievement. Let me know if if that happens anytime during the show. We'll break right in. Okay. All right. By the way, you know what this the the GOP uh, is not trying to stop Obamacare. Uh, because they think it's a bad bill. They're stopping it because they think it's a good bill. Because they think people are going to like it. If it was a bad bill, they would let it go. They would let it uh, kick in in January. They would let it be an enormous disaster. The obvious disaster they're saying it's going to be, oh, everybody's uh, premiums are going to go up. It's going to be terrible. They would let that happen. And then they would sweep the 2014 elections because they're already on record trying to repeal it, that uh, they voted against it. So, no, this, you know, it, it's fun. It's great kabuki theater. I was up for the past 20 hours, what was it, 21 hours and 19 minutes, I think, listening to Ted Cruz uh, and his uh, pretend filibuster. A pretend filibuster, by the way, against a Republican-passed bill that Ted Cruz ended up voting for anyway today. They voted uh, on cloture uh, for this continuing resolution, 100 to nothing in the Senate. All the Republicans voted for it as well. So it, it's a bunch of kabuki theater, uh, but it's fun, and it uh, keeps you from having to pay attention to real things. Speaking of real things, we'll be covering them here on the broadcast today. Uh, coming up uh, exclusive today, as I said, at bradblog.com from Governor Don Siegelman on the acquittal of Tom DeLay. That happened late last week. His son, Joseph, uh, will be joining me because Don Siegelman is in federal prison. <sighs> He's a Democrat. He doesn't get to have his uh, his case uh, reversed 
like uh, Tom DeLay does. Anyway, we'll be talking about that and Don Siegelman's statement uh, that we have posted today exclusively at bradblog.com. We'll be talking about the statement, the outrageous case against the former Alabama governor, the last Democratic governor of that state, the last very popular Democratic governor, by the way, of that state, uh, and the current status of his case. We'll be talking about that with Joseph Siegelman. Uh, in a few moments. Uh, Also, I'll have more today on the show about this horrible bill in California that has still, thankfully, not yet anyway, been signed by Governor Jerry Brown, SB uh, 360. SB 360, it is a bill that will do away with all federal testing of electronic voting systems in California for some reason, for some insane reason, and it will give the Secretary of State the power to approve new electronic voting systems in real live elections without even any state certification testing. It is madness. And by the way, part of Don Siegelman's story underscores the concerns about electronic voting and what happens when the people don't get to oversee their own uh, their own ballots and their own elections. We had paper ballots in that 2002 election of Don Siegelman. But the people weren't able to count them. Neither was Don Siegelman. More on that as we move ahead. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, But if you want to uh, ring in on SB 360, by the way, please go to gov.ca.gov and give the governor your opinion on whether he should sign a bill that does away with all federal testing and gives sweeping new powers to the secretary of state. By the way, that bill was sponsored by Senator Alex, State Senator Alex Padilla, who is himself the leading current uh, candidate for Secretary of State California. So there you go. More on that and uh, hopefully uh, and how uh, Padilla is misleading about that bill and lying to the public and the uh, and lawmakers about what that bill is really about. All of that is ahead and a bit of business this Saturday. You're not going to going to miss it. Uh, Shadows of Liberty, the truth behind the news media, censorship, cover-ups, and corporate control of the U.S. media monopoly. It is a new documentary by Jean-Philippe Tremblay. And uh, KPFK is proud to sponsor a screening this Saturday uh, at the Indep- the downtown Independent Theater. 251 South Main Street here in Los Angeles. If you're in uh, the area, please come on by. I will be hosting the film. I'm also in the film, but it's really good anyway. Uh, we'll have a Q&A afterwards with the uh, director of the uh, film, Jean-Philippe Tremblay. Also, our friend uh, from uh, formerly from Truth Out, now of Al Jazeera, Jason Leopold, will be on a panel with me after the film, as will Desi Doyen. Hey, Desi, you're going to be on that panel. Did you know that after the film? Yes, I know. All right. You got something interesting to say to people on Saturday when you get there? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. What? I said, are you going to have something interesting to say in the panel after the film? Gosh, I hope so. Gosh, <laughs> so do I, Desi. All right. Also, Peter Shear of uh, Truth Dig, KPFK's Truth Dig Radio and the editor of truthdig.org. He'll be on the panel. It's going to be great. Shadows of Liberty. Come on by. You get more information at kpfk.org. You can reserve tickets. Uh, and then come on out at uh, 4.30 p.m. at the Downtown Independent Theater here in Los Angeles. Can't wait to see you. Oh, and we'll play a little uh, trailer for that later on. All right. Uh, Finally, before we get to the Siegelman case and uh, bum everybody out, bum myself out, let me take a moment to mention some good news. 
you know, we never have good news. It's you know, on talk radio, especially on KPFK. Everybody's mad. Everybody's angry. Nothing's ever works out. Uh, and that's true. And don't worry, we're going to have plenty of things to make you mad as the uh, as the broadcast moves moves forward. But you know what? We have had a spate of some really good news, of some really good progressive news. You wouldn't know about it if you weren't paying attention, but there's been sort of a a, a bunch of good news in a row. And I, I want to just take a moment to point that out. One, it looks like there will be no war, at least for the U.S., in Syria. That's very good news. Uh, we may have avoided our next uh, conflagration. I'm delighted about that. Also, if you weren't paying attention, uh, Larry Summers. The big uh, corporatist who it looked like Obama was a shoe-in. We had talked with David Dayan a few months ago about this. Uh, looked like Larry Summers was going to be a shoe-in to be the next uh, chair of the Fed. Larry Summers is out. He quit. He realized the Democrats weren't going to support him, so he's out. So no war in Syria, no Larry Summers at the Fed. And, oh, by the way, the Pope, for the first time in my life— Actually seems like a really good guy. This week, once again, he's come out and done something that uh, is kind of nice. He says that the church should not be obsessed with things like abortion and gay marriage and so forth. So, good for the Pope. More good news. Uh, And then, yesterday, at the UN, Iran's President Hassan Rouhani called uh, for, on U.S. President Barack Obama to ignore, quote, warmongering pressure groups and instead let equal footing, mutual respect, and the recognized principles of international law govern the U.S.-Iran relationship. Speaking at the U.N. General Assembly, Rouhani said Iran poses absolutely no threat to the world and that, quote, peace is within reach in remarks that were uh, carefully watched yesterday by the U.N. Also, he wrote this letter uh, before he came to the U.N., which I thought was really telling, and we should pay attention to it. Uh, He wrote, uh, I think in the Washington Post, that, uh, quote, rather than focusing on how to prevent things from getting worse, we need to think and talk about how to make things better. To do that, we all need to muster the courage to start conveying what we want clearly, concisely, and sincerely, and to back it up with the political will to take necessary action. As I depart for New York, said Iranian President Rouhani, as I depart for New York for the opening of the U.N. General Assembly, I urge my counterparts to seize the opportunity presented by Iran's recent election. I urge them to make the most of the mandate for prudent engagement that my people have given me and to respond genuinely to my government's efforts to engage in constructive dialogue. That's really good news. We'll see what happens. We'll see if he can be trusted. But it's really good news for the first time going back uh, since I was a kid, back in the 70s, uh, that there actually seems to be an attempt to warm relationship the relationship between the U.S. and Iran. For his part, Obama said, quote, the roadblocks may prove to be too great, but I firmly believe the diplomatic path must be tested with Iran. He said that Rouhani's overtures could, quote, offer the basis for a meaningful agreement to curb Iran's nuclear ambitions. He announced that he had instructed uh, Secretary of State John Kerry to press a diplomatic effort along with other world, world powers 
Reuters reports that, quote, though Rouhani has said his election was a mandate from Iranians for more moderate policies at home and abroad, hardline conservatives skeptical of any detente with the U.S. are still dominant in Iran's parliament and military institutions, and the newly elected president might have feared a backlash. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? A, uh, A world leader who has to uh, mind the conservatives and military champions back in his Congress. Huh. Okay. Anyway, Obama appears keen to pursue an opportunity for a major foreign policy achievement while at the same time protecting himself, yes, from the U.S. conservatives who regard the outreach to Iran as weakness. Anyway... Uh, Some potentially good news there. A few items of very good news overall for a change. Enough of that. Let's get to the terrible news. (sighs) Sorry, guys. In the control room, they're all going, no, we want more good news. Too too bad. You got nothing. Uh, Ever since last week's reversal of former GOP rep Tom DeLay's 2010 money laundering convictions by a two-to-one partisan decision, of a three-judge Texas appeals court, uh, I have been covering at Bradblog.com and writing over at Salon uh, about the case and contrasting it, contrasting the Texas Republicans' treatment in the judicial system with that of Alabama's former Democratic governor, Don Siegelman. Now, the last Democratic governor to serve Alabama is finally speaking up for himself Today, in a statement furnished to the Brad blog from federal prison, slamming Tom DeLay for what he describes as his part in a $20 million criminal conspiracy with convicted GOP uber lobbyist Jack Abramoff, Carl Rove, Ralph Reed, Gore Norquist, uh, the whole mess of uh, Republican gangsters. Uh, this conspiracy was, of course, to defeat him in his bid for reelection to ensure he never took office again. Siegelman, for his own part, is currently serving a six and a half year sentence at the Federal Correction Institute in Oakdale, Louisiana, for something that 113 bipartisan former state attorneys general agree had never been regarded as a crime until Siegelman was convicted for it. Uh, I spoke about a year ago, just over a year ago, with the governor, with Don Siegelman. As he was about to return to prison, uh, we talked about uh, his case, and uh, you know he summed up uh, really the heart of this case well, and this notion that this so-called bribe in which he received nothing of uh, no personal enrichment, no quid pro quo. He, here's a little bit uh, of my interview with Don Siegelman from uh, about a year ago today. Do you contend to this day that what you did, do you believe that what you did was not a crime, that this transaction that took place was not a crime? I offered a CEO of a Fortune 500 company a a place on a part-time, non-paying board on which he had served through three previous governors. I was the fourth governor to appoint this guy to the same board. Uh, There was no agreement. He didn't even want to serve on the board. He asked me, Governor, do I have to? And I said, (laughs) and, you know, he was tired of being on the board. He had just resigned from the board. I recruited him to be on the board. This man served five years in prison for something he did not do. And yet, 
Don Siegelman is serving six and a half years while Tom DeLay is free to go. What did Tom DeLay do? Well, Tom DeLay went through this extraordinary complicated scheme in, down in Texas because down in Texas, you're not allowed to, uh, corporations are not allowed to give money directly to candidates. However, they can give it to political action uh, committees so long as that money is not used for candidates. So what did Tom DeLay do? He took his Texas uh, Texans for Republican Majority Trim Pack, a political action committee. He got uh, hundreds of thousand dollars from corporations. He took one hundred and ninety thousand dollars, which, remember, he can't give that committee cannot give directly to candidates. Instead, what he did was he gave one hundred and ninety thousand dollars to a Republican National Committee uh, uh, pack with instructions for the RNC to turn around and give that $190,000 to seven different candidates in Texas. For that, Tom DeLay was charged with money laundering because clearly that's what it was. He couldn't give the money directly to the candidates. Instead, he gave it to the RNC and asked that they give the same amount to those seven candidates. This was back in 2002, the same year that Don Siegelman's election was apparently stolen by a cabal that included Tom DeLay and Ralph, uh, 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 Karl Rove, Ralph Reed, Jack Abramoff, all of these guys. They were trying to assure a majority of Republicans in state houses and in the Congress, and it worked. And eventually... Tom DeLay was caught. He had to resign in disgrace from Congress. He faced charges in 2010. He was found guilty by uh, 12 jurors beyond a reasonable doubt of money laundering. And they, uh, well, I was going to say they threw him in jail, but they didn't. Unlike Don Siegelman, who was immediately shackled and hauled away after he was sentenced, Tom DeLay was uh, was let go on appeal and he got to run around and he got to fight this thing and he's been and he went on dancing with the stars you'll recall he's been fighting it for years until he was finally able to get a favorable opinion from a Texas court from the two Republicans on that Texas court the one Democrat on the panel dissented but he got his Republicans decision and it looks like uh, his eight-year sentence, he will not have served a day, a night in jail. Never spent a night in, uh, in prison. Unlike Don Siegelman, who is serving six and a half years for something that a hundred and, uh, what is it, 113 bipartisan former state attorneys general agree was not actually a crime until Siegelman uh, was convicted of it. So it's a tale of two convictions, and frankly, uh, it's appalling. And by the way, uh, Tom DeLay, uh, the prosecutor in his case, says she is going to ask for a review by the Texas uh, Criminal Court of Appeals. That's the last uh, court of last resort for criminal matters in Texas. However, that court is uh, made up of nine Republicans and zero Democrats. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, in the meantime... Don Siegelman hopes for a uh, hopes for a pardon from the president of the United States. Um, well, in, in any case, uh, the uh, son of the of Alabama's very questionably convicted former governor, Don Siegelman, who, as I say, is cur serving six and a half years in the Federal Correctional Institute in uh, Oakdale, Louisiana. Uh, he has been a jo Joseph Siegelman. Uh, 
uh, has been uh, out uh, supporting his father. He recently graduated law school. He's been actively involved in the case for years now. Uh, and while I have talked to uh, Don Siegelman many times on the air, I've talked to uh, his daughter, Dana Siegelman, many times on the air. It's my first time speaking with Joseph Siegelman. Joseph, delighted to have you here on the broadcast. Welcome to KPFK, sir. Well, thank you, Brad. I'm very glad to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming. Uh, of course, uh, your father is otherwise not available to join us, unfortunately. But I did get a chance to speak with him just uh, by coincidence. Uh, a week and a half ago, I was with your sister, and your father happened to call in the three minutes or so that they uh, allow him to make a call out, and I, I got to talk to him. This was before the delay decision came down. He seemed to be in surprisingly good spirits, uh, frankly, considering what he's facing. Facing. Uh, his statement today slamming Tom DeLay for a $20 million uh, criminal money laundering conspiracy in Alabama to take him down, uh, there was a, it, it was a stinging indictment, frankly. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to talk to your dad since the DeLay decision and uh, how this has affected him and his mood and, and how he's otherwise doing, Joseph. Well, I will um, first admit that I have been uh, so involved and really just uh, so so just deeply focused on my dad's case uh-huh. that um, I have not really uh, learned about the uh, the different pieces and moving parts of Tom Delay's conviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't really followed it to the appeals. I've I've read the news the the recent uh, news articles uh, about his um, his acquittal recently, mm-hmm. but. Um, I've been aware of the uh, this money laundering scheme that came into Alabama that uh, was infiltrated into the state to to defeat my dad in the 2002 election for quite some time. We knew that it had occurred. Uh, there was really no way that that we could prove that it occurred until Jack Abramoff openly admitted in his book that I believe was released in. 2011, where he said, point blank in his book, that uh, he and his counterparts spent uh, roughly $20 million uh, that they funneled that into the state through various means in order to defeat Don Siegelman. And um, as my dad noted in his statement, mm-hmm. uh, he feels this was not limited to uh, to Jack Abramoff and his his, you know, his buddies and Carl Rove, uh, but that it extended to people like Tom Delay, and that that he in fact had some uh, some level of involvement uh, in these laundering operations that weren't just limited to uh, Tom Delay's recent conviction and now acquittal, but that uh, this happened in other areas and to a far greater extent, which is what. Uh, my dad was trying to explain in his statement. Uh, yeah, and he did. And in fact, uh, when I've talked to your dad over the past few years, he has often invoked uh, Tom DeLay and Tom DeLay's involvement in this. This is not just, you know, sour grapes now that Tom DeLay seems to have gotten off the hook here. Um, and we'll see if he gets off the hook. Essentially, the Republican judges are arguing that because the corporations gave the money legally, there was no criminal proceeds here. Therefore, Tom DeLay uh, can't be charged with money laundering because you have to have 
criminal proceeds uh, involved in a money laundering case. Uh, I, I'm trying to still learn more about that case and, and, you know, how much of this really is a partisan decision and, and how much it's just uh, one of those issues of law. Uh, the issues of law in your father's case, however, seems much clearer. And over the years, as I've talked to him, uh, he has mentioned Tom DeLay as part of this cabal. I'd like to play Joseph um, uh, another clip from my interview with your dad about a year ago describing the 2002 election. Now, people need to understand that uh, Don Siegelman in Alabama was the only person in Alabama history to hold all four uh, top uh, top elected uh, statewide offices. What uh, governor, lieutenant governor? What was it, uh, Joseph? Secretary of State. Attorney, yeah, Secretary of State and Attorney General. That's right. Right, and, and I always want to say he was he was the only Democrat to do that. He was the only person to do that. He was uh, seen right. as a serious threat. It seems to me uh, by Karl Rove and those guys. I mean, here you had this very popular Southern Democratic uh, governor. They needed to take him out. And it seems like they were willing to do just about anything and everything to do just that. Is that essentially the, the heart of the, the contention that uh, your father has been making about this uh, cabal? You're, you're exactly right, and I'll elaborate just a little bit. Sure. When my dad was elected in 1998, when he was first elected governor, he challenged in that election the Republican incumbent governor and ended up winning that election by a 15-point margin as a Democrat in the very red state of Alabama. Yeah. So it was unheard of and unprecedented for him to win that election by itself. And um, in, I want to say, early 2002, it may have been 2001, uh, there was a Republican publication, uh, the Kiplinger Letter, that was touting the potential Democratic candidates to challenge President Bush in his re-election. And my dad came up on that list as the dark horse candidate. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, he, at the time, was a very popular Democratic governor in an otherwise red state. And he had become, at that point, one of the most outspoken critics of, um, of President Bush. And so he was seen as a, a potential threat to, to Bush in 2004. And we weren't the only ones that knew that and and. Uh, one individual who absolutely knew that Siegelman was a threat was Karl Rove. And uh, there's ample evidence that uh, all of these uh, these charges and indictments that ultimately came down from Bush's Department of Justice, uh, that Karl Rove had a hand in all of that. Well, there's a lot of evidence of that. And you have uh, judges involved with the case that were actually Karl Rove's uh, clients. You have the one of the prosecutors who was actually married uh, to Bob Riley, the guy who, who came in and, and uh, the opponent of your dad. Uh, his chief of staff was married to one of the prosecutors in the case that prosecuted your father. There's also all kinds of. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, yeah the, the U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Alabama, the office that brought the indictment and prosecuted, case, prosecuted the case against my dad, that U.S. attorney was married to the campaign manager of my dad's opponent. Uh, yeah. It was a, a remarkably overt and blatant conflict of interest that the Department of Justice apparently ignored. And uh, she 
after handling the case for nearly a year without disclosing your conflict to us and uh, only stepping down after we objected and complained of it mm-hmm. uh, nearly a year later once we had found out. She did, in fact, step down. But we learned after the conviction, after the trial, that she actually had remained intimately involved with the prosecution uh, on a whole number of levels. And there was actually a whistleblower from the Department of Justice that came forward detailing this U.S. attorney's integral involvement with the prosecution. And, uh, and yes, that's one of the most just seemingly obscene examples of the injustice that occurred in my dad's case was that the campaign manager of my dad's opponent in the upcoming election was married to the prosecutor <laughs> I, yeah. whose office brought the case against him. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And we found out that uh, their star witness was, was uh, coached and cajoled by those prosecutors. But uh, even before the prosecution came about, I, I want to play this because we cover a, a, a lot at uh, both Brad Blog and here on the Bradcast uh, concerns about voting systems. And uh, this was really one of the earliest uh, signs that, that I saw with electronic voting systems. I think it was a Diebold system down in in a small county in Alabama, uh, a paper ballot system, mind you, but an electronic tabulator. And this is one of the reasons why I always uh, warn about these systems. This was 2002. These systems had just come in. Your dad was up for re-election. And, uh, well, let me let him describe. Uh, this was, again, from a year ago, my interview with him uh, about a year ago, uh, what happened in the 2002 election against Bob Riley. Uh, before the prosecutions came about to give you an idea of how far they were willing to go to take down Don Siegelman. I know that most people don't want to believe that in this country that we would torture people for uh, to get information. They don't want to believe that we would authorize illegal wiretaps. They don't want to believe that we would be led into war under false pretenses. They don't want to believe that elections in this country are stolen or that their Department of Justice could be used as a weapon to win elections. Yeah, I want to talk about two people involved in my re-election campaign that was stolen. One was Carl Rove's client, who was rewarded by being appointed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and there he sits today as the Chief Justice of, of the 11th Circuit. My, my overseeing, client, overseeing your case, correct? Overseeing my case. Right. This is the guy, this is the guy, as Carl Rove's client, and I'll have to say this, I, I the guy is basically intellectually honest, but when it came down to the crunch, when Rove said, "Stop this recount," I was, I was, I had won my election. They had stolen it. I wanted a recount in one little tiny precinct in this Republican county, and and it was Carl Rove's client who stood in the way and participated in the stealing of my election. Explain what happened, Governor, the night uh, of that election when, as I understand it, as you've told me in the past, you went to bed thinking you won the election. I went to bed. I had won the election. The votes were counted. They were, it was done. The poll watchers, the party officials, the media had been sent home. I was declared the winner of the 2002 gubernatorial election in Alabama by CBS, NBC, all of them, all of the, everybody said, 
the election's over, signal me one. Then after midnight, the lights go out in the courthouse in, in the South Alabama uh, County. Uh, and in the sheriff's office, there is a, there is a quote, recount. Nobody's there to watch the recount. They just shift 5,000 votes of mine to my opponent, the Carl Rove-supported candidate. And oddly enough, while it affects my race, it doesn't impact any down-ballot race by one single vote. So they take 5,000 votes from the governor's race and move it to from the Democratic column to the Republican column. And this it's was done elect- possible. This was done electronically, electronically correct? Yes, it yes, was five. it was the tabulators. Now is this was this were these touchscreen machines down there or paper ballot systems uh, down no, there? This, it was it was a it was a it was a paper ballot Paper ballot system, but it was an electronic uh, tabulator where the numbers changed and shifted. And there have been study after study by universities, professors, Mm -hmm. and they they have concluded that there is no explanation other than the votes were stolen. But the the guys that was given credit, I mean, the one who stopped the recount was Carl Rose's client, who was then appointed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The people given credit were Carl Rose's uh, partner and this guy that went to work for Tom DeLay and, and Jack Abramoff. And they would not let you count those paper ballots? The numbers shifted no. on the tabulator, no. but they would not no. let you count the actual the ballots, ballots to see what they exactly. act. The paper that's ballots. All we, that's all we asked for. And what was so odd was that the local officials, even though they were Republicans, the local officials invited me in to count the ballots. But Carl Rose's client stepped in and said, anybody that touches those ballots is going to jail. <laughs> Nothing to worry about there. Uh, and, and you hear that was my uh, interview with uh, Governor Don Siegelman a, a little over a year ago, just before he had to return to jail to serve out his six and a half year sentence. Uh, and you heard him talking about Tom DeLay there as well. Uh, Joseph Siegelman, uh, son of Don Siegelman, what is the current status right now of the case? Is there another appeal ahead? And uh, can he apply for a pardon for clemency from the president of the United States before the appeals uh, procedures have completed at this point, Joseph? That's quite a loaded question. Uh, let's see. I'll, I'll start with the fact that uh, my dad was reincarcerated for the second time uh, on September 11th of last year. And this is by the judge who um, my dad had politically embarrassed years earlier. But uh, September 11th this year was his, his one-year anniversary, if you will, from uh, going back to prison from his re-sentence. Uh, this is all the same case. Mm-hmm. And he had been incarcerated eight months before, so he's actually coming on his second year behind bars. Uh, the state of his case is uh, it is it has now gone up to the Supreme Court twice. The Supreme Court originally vacated the sentence, but it went back to the Eleventh Circuit, where uh, the individual whom my dad spoke up spoke of. A number of times that last clip, the same individual who stopped the recount in the 2002 election now sits on the 11th Circuit. And he and his colleagues decided that the Supreme Court was wrong and reaffirmed the conviction, and that triggered my dad being sent back to prison last September. Now, where we are, uh, where we are today is we have filed a motion for a new trial, which was immediately denied by this trial judge. And that's based on um, a number of things. The probably the most most blatant, the main issue of it is 
the fact that this U.S. attorney, who was married to the campaign manager of my dad's opponent, remained involved throughout the duration of this prosecution. And her involvement is what ultimately led to a conviction in this case, because the case would never have been brought by someone who was impartial and objective, because so, there simply was no crime. So are you appealing again on that basis? And I'm, I'm only uh, going to uh, push you here a little bit because we're coming up against the clock. So there's an appeal on that basis, and, there, and yeah, go ahead. There is, there is an appeal, and that appeal will be, will be heard by the 11th Circuit, and we expect no favors from the 11th Circuit, but we at that point, should they deny the appeal, then we move to the Supreme Court. Uh, as far as uh, our clemency efforts, we're absolutely uh, striving toward a pardon or commutation from the president. And uh, in all likelihood and actuality, that's probably the only way that he'll end up getting out of prison, is if the president stands up and does the right thing and says, you know, if this, if this governor of Alabama could go to prison, I could go to prison. You know, this is not something that was a crime. This is not something anybody should be in prison for. And in case uh, your viewers aren't uh, entirely, or listeners aren't entirely familiar with the actual substance of the alleged, you know, crime, and I put crime in quotation marks, um, my dad wanted an education lottery in the state of Alabama that would have sent underprivileged Alabama children to college tuition-free. And it was an issue referendum campaign. So he raised money to um, to advocate for this campaign, to run commercials and to put out flyers, you know, detailing what the lottery would do. And uh, this, this businessman who my dad spoke of in one of your clips contributed to that lottery campaign that would have benefited these Alabama children. And my dad reappointed him to the position, uh, as you described it, uh, he didn't even want. That he had already served served on under three previous governors and resigned from. Exactly, they and were he, able to show no quid pro quo, no personal enrichment uh, for your father. Uh, it's an amazing case, and Joseph, I only I got to run to a break, but I want to make sure that people get uh, 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 a website where they can help out. Is it freedonsiegelman dot org? Uh, is that the correct? The web, uh, yeah, the website. The website is the website is free don dot org. There's a petition on there. Please sign it and. The entire case, there's an explanation, there's an expose, about 60 minutes. Uh, watch that. It's only about 10 minutes. It'll give you an overview of the case. And uh, we need all the support and help we can get. This is a manifest injustice. And um, he will remain in prison until 2018, absent action by the president or, or others. And get more details on his statement today about this uh, cabal, this conspiracy, this criminal conspiracy that Tom DeLay, uh, he alleges, was involved in at bradblog.com in the statement from Don Siegelman that he gave uh, gave to us today at bradblog.com. Joseph Siegelman, thank you for all the work you're doing. Uh, send our best regards to your father. And folks should check out free don org to sign the petition uh, for uh, a pardon from the President of the United States. Joseph, really appreciate you talking to us today. Brad, thank you so much.
See? Aren't you glad I gave you that good news before we went to that story? All right, we're going to take a quick break. Come right back with much more broadcast straight ahead, including Desi Doyen and the Green News and a teaser from Shadows of Liberty, which we'll be screening this weekend, and I hope you will join me for. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Stay with us. Fathom Events presents Pompeii from the British Museum. An exclusive Fathom Events presents Pompeii from the British Museum, an exclusive private view of the major exhibition Life and Death in Pompeii and Herculaneum, exploring the homes and lives of the inhabitants of the thriving industrial hub Pompeii and the small seaside village of Herculaneum, nearly 2000 years ago when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. With accompanying music, poetry, and readings from eyewitness accounts, it's a behind the scenes discovery of the stories behind these famous Roman cities. Pompeii from the British Museum screens one night only on Wednesday, September 25th at 7.30 p.m. A very limited number of tickets have been offered to KPFK Film Club members for screenings at Promenade 16 in Woodland Hills, City Walk Stadium 19 at Universal City, and Santa Anita 16 in Arcadia. KPFK Film Club members are invited to call the front desk during business hours at 818-985-2711-0 for operator for a pair of tickets to this extraordinary evening. And if you aren't already a film club member, please consider joining at kpfk.org. Welcome back. This is your Bradcast on KPFK. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Once again, we got a screening coming up of Shadows of Liberty, the truth behind the news media censorship, cover-ups, and corporate control of the U.S. media monopoly this Saturday out here in Los Angeles. I will be hosting with a Q&A afterwards. Would love for you to join us if you're in town. You see, that's why these things matter. The people who don't know about the story of Don Siegelman, who don't know about that stolen election of 2002. Because it's not covered in the corporate media. you got to come to uh, KPFK to hear uh, the story about what uh, seems to really be going on in our country. So you're going to want to join us, uh, like I say, great panel Q&A afterwards with the director of the film, Jean-Philippe Tremblay, and uh, Jason Leopold of Al Jazeera, Desi Doyen, our own Desi Doyen, is going to be joining us, and Peter Shear of Truth Dig and KPFK's Truth Dig Radio. Whether you can come to the screening or not, uh, let me just give you a quick taste of this. Uh, we have a, a, a clip from the film. Oh, it includes a, a lot of people you know, uh, Dan Rather, Amy Goodman, uh, John Nichols. Uh, and uh, even uh, Sibel Edmonds, a lot of whistleblowers, Julian Assange, even myself, as I say, but it's good anyway. Here is a, a taste of Shadows of Liberty. All we ever get is a veil of distortion and lies and misrepresentations that obscure reality. We have an update on that. This evening, we have a lot of news to tell you about. Giant media corporations decide what is news and what is not news. Is to control people's ideas, is to control their imagination. 
the news we rely on is in the hands of commercial enterprises. If it didn't appear in the New York Times, Fox News, CNN, it never happened. There are certain events in journalism that you may not cover. There were incidences of physical abuse. CBS decided this is not a story we're going to fight for. All of a sudden, the plane exploded, and one guy goes, Oh, you think it's a missile? It was a complete act of deceit. Well, we basically supported the Bush policy. When that many people die, you owe it to them to find out what really happened. Spying. Censorship. Militarism. Secrets. Corruption. Power. Lies. Profit. 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 This is the mother of all scandals. Corporations are making profit off the killing. You cannot go against the White House and survive. There has never been a conspiracy. Wars really are started by the mainstream media. Wow. Wow. Man, I'm exhausted just listening to the trailer. That is Shadows of Liberty, the documentary screening this weekend by Jean-Philippe Tremblay uh, here at uh, in L.A., the Downtown Independent Theater, Saturday, September 28th. At 4.30 p.m. Hope you can make it. I'll be uh, hosting that and the Q&A afterwards. That's uh, Shadows of Liberty at Downtown Independent Theater, 251 South Main Street. Get more information at kpfk.org. Yes, independent media matters. Uh, Desi tells me there's a parking garage next door. So uh, come on out. You got no excuses. And uh, I think it's a a donation, like a $10 donation, but we will turn no one away if you can't afford it. Come on out and say hello. I'd I'd also love to see you. Uh, Okay, before we get to Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, just a quick word, as I promised on SB 360, this terrible bill that has yet to be signed by the governor of California, and this matters to everyone in the nation. I know we have a lot of people listening on our syndicated stations. This matters to everyone in the nation because... The bill is about the creation of a new electronic 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting system that L.A. County wants to develop, the largest voting jurisdiction in the country. They want to develop this system and then sell it to the rest of the country. And this bill is meant to make that easier by doing away with all federal testing of that system and potentially even all state testing of that system. But the way it's been sold to people, this is amazing. And uh, cue up, uh, G, get ready for uh, clip number uh, number six here. The way this has been sold by the author of the bill, State Senator Alex Padilla, uh, is that, oh, we need this bill because the, we we got to do away with these proprietary voting systems, these privately owned systems. We need in California to be able to own our own voting systems, to have publicly owned voting systems. Well, that sounds good. And, of course, the lawmakers were all in favor of this. At least the Democrats were. This passed on partisan lines a couple of weeks ago. It sounds good. Who doesn't want a publicly owned voting system? That sounds like a great idea. As a matter of fact, uh, Alex Padilla uh, went on uh, uh, KSRO the day, I think it was the day before this bill passed, to explain that that's all this bill does is it lets counties develop their own voting systems. Here, give it a listen. 
have introduced a piece of legislation that doesn't mandate but allows uh, at the county level uh, county governments to um, own the own voting systems if they develop a criteria that they believe meets their need and can get into a partnership with the manufacturer uh, of voting equipment and uh, hope to improve the the integrity of the process uh, along the way. Hey, that sounds great. Improve the integrity of the process. Well, L.A. can publicly own its own voting system. That sounds great. What did Senator State Senator Alex Padilla not say on that radio show? What does he not say? when he's pitching this bill to lawmakers and to the public, that in California, counties may already own their own voting system. In fact, here in Los Angeles, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, larger than 36 complete states, we already own our own voting system. So Padilla has been out there misrepresenting this bill, not telling people that it ends federal testing of voting systems, not telling people that it gives unprecedented sweeping powers to the secretary of state to allow new electronic voting systems without any uh, testing whatsoever. Not pointing out, by the way, that he could be the beneficiary of that power as our next secretary of state since he's running. He's a leading candidate. Our current secretary of state uh, is termed out. He's not telling those things. Neither is anyone in the media. Other than at Bradblog.com, the only reports I've seen on this bill were at this, uh, this site called California Forward, where they sang its praises, where they said, we need this bill so we can have a 21st century voting system. They said absolutely nothing about the dangers, absolutely nothing that it will end federal testing. And neither did they uh, mention that the Leadership Council of California Forward, this uh, website of, of corporate uh, business uh, businessmen and women, also includes the former Republican Secretary of State, Bruce McPherson, the one who was appointed by Arnold Schwarzenegger after they had pushed out the previous Democratic Secretary of State midterm right after he had decertified Diebold touchscreen voting systems in California. So they got the Republican Secretary of State in, and the Republican Secretary of State, despite having found all of these uh, huge security flaws in the system, that Republican Secretary of State, with a wave of his pen, recertified these Diebold touchscreens. And now that former Secretary of State is sitting on this board of this, uh, this website, CaliforniaForward.org, that puts out this glowing review of this terrible bill, saying, oh, yes, Governor Brown, please sign it so that we can move forward to the 21st century and uh, use space-age technology like Internet voting, <sighs> new touchscreen systems in L.A. It's crazy. Please contact the governor, gov.ca.gov, no matter where you live, because this system, L.A. County has said, will be sold to the entire country after it's developed here in L.A. with or without testing. So, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm one voice. I'm warning about this bill, gov.ca.gov. Uh, there's a place there you can drop down. You can choose SB 360. You can tell the governor whether you're for it or against it. I'd say you ought to be against it. But uh, at least he hasn't signed it yet, so perhaps you're making a difference Yes, we have to speak up, unless you want some more elections like that one uh, Don Siegelman was talking about. All right, let's do some green news. It's not easy being green. No, it's not. 
It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. Blending in with ordinary things is Desi Doyen. Hey, Des. Hey. Okay. Uh, we're, uh, as usual, running late because what am I doing? Ranting. Well, we have a lot of How stuff to talk about. How unusual that is, yeah, huh? Yeah, I know. Uh, all right. Let's get right to the green news, and we'll see if we have a few minutes uh, afterwards to uh, chat about the soup we're in from here. Climate change caused by carbon pollution is one of the most significant public health threats of our time. EPA issues first ever carbon pollution standards for new power plants. Colorado's flood disaster, now an oil spill disaster. U.S. coal plants, the seventh biggest polluter in the world. Fracking industry study accidentally proves the case for regulations. Plus, it is high time that we put a price on carbon. And within the political system, we have to put a price on denial. Al Gore says science denial should be socially unacceptable. All of that socially unacceptable news and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Put a price on carbon. Put a price on denial. Okay, $1.50. Stop yelling at me, Al Gore. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know we got a lot to cover today because this week the new UN climate report is coming out and all the denialists are going nuts in advance before it's even showed up. But the Tribune in Greeley, Colorado, is reporting that local companies are now dealing with damaged oil tanks following what they are calling Colorado's Great Flood of 2013. We've been covering that here on the Green News Report for the last several weeks. The spill numbers continue to rise. By Tuesday, the amount spilled is some 35,000 gallons of oil from storage tanks. That's confirmed so far. There are teams on the ground. There are thousands of oil wells and tanks that need to be inspected. What started out as a flooding disaster is now an oil spill disaster and reminds us that we've got to take climate change impacts into mind when approving these new projects like the drilling and fracking boom we've seen in Colorado over the past several years. Yeah, it really calls into question the wisdom of putting all of this oil and gas development in the middle of known flood zones. And spending billions of dollars only to have to deal with billions of dollars in cleanup uh, years later. Anyway, what else do you have for us today? Well, first, it's official. The Obama administration's Environmental Protection Agency has released the first ever greenhouse gas emission standards for new power plants. It's a really big deal since power plants currently account for 40 percent of our carbon emissions. The carbon pollution standards we are proposing today for new power plants are both flexible and achievable. That was EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy announcing the historic standards required by a Supreme Court ruling in 2007. Why do these standards apply only to new power plants? Why do these standards apply only to new power plants? Well, here's Gina. We need to act today. Given the fact that any investment as large as a power plant is going to be hanging around for a while. And so is the pollution for decades based on the regulations they put in place now when they build the plant. Exactly. Now these new standards are already being met by most natural gas power plants. They'll be difficult however for new coal plants unless companies invest in carbon capture and storage technology which the coal industry says is too expensive. No new coal plants are being proposed in the U.S. right now 
anyway, because cheaper, cleaner natural gas is already pushing coal into the dust. Well done. And yet the coal industry for years has been bragging about their clean coal technology. I guess it just doesn't exist. Oh, it exists. They just don't want to spend the money on it. Oh, oh well. Boo-hoo. See you later, Cole. The real battle will come when the EPA tackles emissions from existing power plants next year. Meanwhile, a recent report on U.S. air pollution shows that the nation's top 50 dirtiest coal-fired power plants, if they were combined into a country, put out enough air pollution to qualify on their own as the seventh biggest polluter in the world. That's right, the top 50 dirtiest coal plants in the U.S. combined put out more pollution than all but six countries in the world. A new study, partially funded by the fracking industry, inadvertently proves the need for more regulation on fracking. The study shows that wells using the best new technology can substantially cut dangerous emissions of methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Critics say it shows the industry can produce gas with very low emissions. They simply choose not to. As one researcher said, quote, they do better when they know they're being carefully watched. As we said before, we're already seeing a deluge of propaganda from the climate change denial industry in advance of the latest U.N. climate report due on Friday. At a climate conference this week, former Vice President Al Gore says there should be a social cost to denying climate science, much like racism and homophobia are now socially unacceptable. We have to put a price on denial. I remember when one of my friends made some racist comment and another one of my friends says, hey, cut it out, man. We don't talk like that anymore. Speak up. And when these conversations about climate take place, don't let denial go unchallenged. Headline, Al Gore has racist friends. <laughs> For much more on that story and all of those we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download us anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. Find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Put a price on carbon. Put a price on denial. This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening to you and your That's a great song there by They Might Be Giants. Al Gore hanging out with racists. I knew it. That's right. Thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to G, our soundboard operator, to uh, our guest Joseph Siegelman. Uh, that's okay. Don't go away. John Wiener's coming up next with Rye Cooter's new live album. You're not going to want to miss that on the 4 o'clock report until the same Brad time, same Brad channel next week. You can find me on the Twitters at, uh, where am I? I'm at the Brad blog and at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America. <laughs> <laughs>